Hello and welcome to the episode 33 of our podcast, Smart Consulting Sourcing, the podcast about consulting procurement. My name is Hélène and I'll be your host today. Each week I'll give you the keys to better use, manage and source consulting services. This week I'll discuss with Mark Jensen from the Consultancy Growth Network about the sourcing process from a consultant perspective. Last week, I explained how to anticipate your consulting needs to start building relationships and intimacy with your providers. We saw that onboarding and developing a consulting provider was helping to get there more ready and more successful with their project with your internal clients. And sherry on the cake, always having on hand a list of potential providers will help you to take control of the tale. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. And um, so today I wanted to take advantage of having you uh, on the podcast to to really talk about how consultants see the sourcing process and and working with consultants. But before we dive in, I would like you to tell us a bit more about you and um, how you work with consultants, what the consultancy growth network is doing. You know the drill. It's on you. Yeah, sure. So, um, so very briefly, I started life as a chartered accountant with Pricewaterhouse, um, moved into an operational role with PepsiCo, and then uh, built a consulting, management consulting and training business uh, from uh, scratch through till uh, sort of 10 million turnover, uh, exited to uh, Capita uh, back in 2013. And so, have yeah, sort of 17 years running a boutique consulting business. And uh, since then, I've been advising owners of consulting businesses, uh, supporting them on their growth journey. And also, last year, we um, founded the. I founded the Consultancy Growth Network, which is a community specifically for owners of consulting businesses looking to accelerate growth. Right. So I'm sure you've worked with uh, buyers before, <laughs> and so uh, I'd like you to tell me from your perspective. What are the main issues that consultants face when they're during that sourcing process with procurement? So uh, it's an interesting one. I think that what strikes me is uh, if you look at what makes the difference between an average consultant and what makes a great consultant, a lot of that is about the quality of their questions. Mm -hmm. And a typical sourcing process does two things. Firstly, it drives us as consultancies into a binary Q&A process. So rather than having the ability to probe, to explore hypotheses, to understand what's worked in the past and what the operational buyer's vision of success is, we're kind of pushed into this mechanism where we have to answer, uh, sort of ask specific questions and get binary answers. So that's one of the biggest challenges, I would say. And and linked to that, what that requires is uh, us as consultants is to share our questions. Um, so we you know, often have to put the questions onto the portal. And, and of course, the competitors all then get access to both the questions we've asked and, our, and the answers. And so it's a real balance in terms of what you ask and how much you therefore share. And uh, yeah, I think that's probably my biggest gripe in terms of the process. Yeah, I think that's that's um, that's interesting because I always recommend to do Q and A's to uh, my clients and to uh, share that with all the consultants so they're all on the same page. And but I agree with you that um, the ones that have the right question, the good questions, would have more of an edge. It was not shared. 
Um, but but I think that when you put yourself in the shoes of the consult of the of the procurement group and the company, what they want are great proposals, and they want a to be able to choose from excellent proposal. Two or three is great. I mean, it's better to have two or three great proposal than one excellent and two mediocre ones. So uh, it's kind yeah, of sure. like the interest here are not aligned, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and I completely understand, you know, um, where, where whoever's sourcing the work is coming from. I get that. They want to compare apples with apples, right? But uh, what you lose is actually through the conversation, you know, yeah. through, through having that access. Where, where access is restricted, that's where the challenge comes uh, to the operational buyers to be able to go deeper and to really test out different potential routes, because there's always more than one way to skin the cat, right? So, um, yeah, that, that, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I see your point. It's it's um, uh, having just an RFP and be able to to ask questions is great. It's a good start, but at some point you need to talk directly to the potential clients and ask those okay. specific questions. Understand what's the culture. What's the organization? What's the um, legacy in terms of organization or, you know, whatever they've done before that didn't work. All of this cannot be put into an RFP. I agree with you. And it shouldn't be done in an RFP because you don't want to have a, like a 40-page book. So at some point, interactions are good. And that's also, you know, to your point, I'd say that that's also where you will, as a procurement person or a potential client, be able to test if you can work with that person if you yes. can these there's a fit because it's a human to human business right you need to have trust you need to have a fit you need to uh you know blend in in some way and make a team that works and uh so like on that i think that's um that's a very good point so we talked about the sourcing process and and that necessity of being able to interact more directly with the client and, and ask those questions. Um, but once the, the selection is done, you sign the contract and you're starting working with those clients. At, at that point, what are the main challenges that, that a consultant can face with, uh, with a project? Um, well, probably the biggest challenge is, is gonna be under the heading of changes in scope, uh, I would suggest. So you know, all too often the client uh, well, either the procurement process has taken so long that things have now changed, right? Yeah. That's, that's option one. Option two is that uh, not enough evaluation and work was done to truly understand the problem. Mm -hmm. And there are other problems that need to be resolved before the kind of core problem that the RFP is all about um, to ensure that that is successful. So um, fairly early on through you know, effective diagnostic, diagnostic activities, uh, it's often the case that you identify things that need to be fixed that aren't in the scope of the work. And, and often the relationship between the operational buyer is now the key relationship because procurement are generally not involved, yeah. you know, um, and, I, and I think they should be. They should be more connected, uh, particularly to, to those conversations. And they should also, I guess, set it up for success. So I would always encourage um, the consultants that I work with to, when they bid to also put in a contingency line, you know, uh, and it's in the interest, particularly if the operational buyer is going to procure or, you know, to, to secure budget, then to secure some contingency for 
for that eventuality, which is almost certainly going to come along, which is going to be some stuff that's out of scope, far better to ask once now uh, and then not have to, to go back and ask for more money later. So I think that change in scope is the biggest challenge. And I think procurement can certainly have a, a role in that. I think the second area would be around uh, new stakeholders creeping out of the woodwork or even existing stakeholders potentially sabotaging the, the intentions of the project due to internal politics. Yes. Those are probably the key challenges, I think, for, for consultancies, you know, because that's really hard to manage as people. You're, you're in there trying to build a relationship, trying to make a difference, make things happen. And then you've got infighting going on and you don't really understand all the politics that are going on. And again, procurement are in a fairly good sort of neutral position, I think, to be able mm -hmm. to support that. I think what is really interesting is that both of those cases, like changing in scopes and stakeholders, are really part of project management per se. Like it's that's are the basic of project management. And I think that when you outsource a project and you work with external consultants, you tend to forget that this project you have to manage it, just like any other project that you do internally. So you need to put in place a steering committee, you need to have governance, you need to uh, involve the stakeholders early on so they really um, embrace the project and they want to come on board and they, and they don't at the end try to oppose it and make it, it make it fail. So I, I, I think this is, this is like a key thing uh, to tell to clients and procurement alike is when you launch a project with a consultant, you need to manage it and you need to put those consultants in really the best positions because you you'll be on the loose end if they fail. The, yeah, this yeah. this is your company. This is your problem. Your issue they're trying to solve. Of course, they're trying to make money, but on, from in your shoes, this you're going to be in in on the on the loose end. So this is like so important. I have another question, and um, I know you know you've you've you're working now with small consultancies, and yeah. you've worked in a large consultancy. And what I would like you to tell us is, from a client perspective, what, what, is, what is different when you work with a small consultancy and when you work with a large consultancy? So uh, I think the, probably the main thing is the level of engagement of the team. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, I remember... Uh, pitching for work with Prudential and we went through this big procurement process and we were down to the last two and, and they turned to me and said, okay, so it's you or this company, you know, why you? And my response was, because we care. It was simple, really simple, because we really care, because it matters. So if you're working in a boutique consulting firm, whether it's an owner, so the, it may be owner-led as a, as a consulting firm. The project may also be owner-led or it may not be. But either way, those people working on that project are generally emotionally connected to the owner, emotionally connected to the success or failure of the business. Mm -hmm. And that project is typically quite important to, to the success or failure of the business. So I, I would say that the number one thing you get with a boutique consulting firm is you'll get people who are prepared to go really above and beyond. And that's not to say people in big firms don't go above and beyond because they will, but they'll do it for different reasons. So for example, when I worked at Pricewaterhouse, you, you always know there's another project. Um, yes. If this project doesn't quite work out or the scope changes or something happens, you just get moved as a team onto another project. You're not as connected to the impact of something not quite going right. So you don't take as much ownership for the kind of end-to-end -end 
experience and ensuring that those outcomes are delivered. I, I'd say that's the probably the biggest difference for me. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, you need to be the biggest fish in the pound, right? <laughs> always, and you know, I think that's what is very important is you always trying to push yourself to become a strategic client for that consultant. And with small companies, it, you're almost always a strategic client. So you know that you're going to get the best because they really care, as you say. And, and not only because it's a strategic account and they want to make money, but I, I agree with you. Uh, you will interact with uh, partners more often. You will have more seniority on field. Um, and, and also they have more skin in the game because very often they're partners and they, they are shareholders of the company. And so they have literally their skin in the game. So that's also kind of quite different. So since we're talking about skin in the game and and uh, making money, uh, that's a question I'm sure you know my my friends that aren't procurement uh, professional will be very interested to to know more about that. How do consultants make money? That's a tough one. <laughs> so sometimes they don't. <laughs> um, um, I've worked with a few that, that have struggled in that department, for sure. Um, it, in simple terms, on a project basis, uh, it's all about ensuring that they can charge more for their consultants than they pay them, right? So that, that's a basic principle. And whether that's a contractor they're bringing in on 500 a day and, and selling out at 1,000 a day, or a permanent consulting they're paying 80,000 pounds a year to, and needs a certain level of utilization to make sure that they, they deliver a certain number of days and they make a margin on them. So. At its core, consultancies make a margin on the people um, that they put out delivering the work. However, um, how much margin they make uh, is, is a factor of a number of variables. So uh, firstly, scarcity of expertise. So there are lots and lots of consultancies out there that do similar work, then inevitably the rate's going to be lower, the margins are going to be tighter. Mm-hmm. Um, but if there's loads of demand and the resource is relatively scarce, um, the methodologies are quite unique. Um, then, then obviously rates and margins can improve, and, and then I guess the you know there are three probably the three primary pricing mechanisms: so time and materials, fixed fee, or risk and reward. And as the as the consultancy takes more risk and has more confidence in their ability to deliver outcomes, then I would say the opportunity to make more money is greater. So, for example, we did a. Um, I remember we did a deal with Carphone Warehouse. It was a, you know, on a fee rate, it would have been two hundred and forty thousand um, pounds, and we would have made, let's say, 55 percent gross margin on that. Um, bearing in mind we have overheads that obviously need to come off that um, yeah. as well. Uh, however, we we offer them a risk and reward deal, so we said we cut the fee in half to one hundred twenty thousand, um, but we would take a percentage of the upside that we created in terms of their revenue generation. During the 12-month yeah. period, we, we created a significant uptick. We ended up getting paid over half a million pounds for that £240,000 project. We made an 80% margin, uh, but we took the risk. And they ended up with a £9.5 million contribution on the bottom line. So everybody was happy. Um, so I, I, I think in terms of, you know, that, that's at the sort of far end of the spectrum. That's where you can make a lot more money if you're yeah. able to demonstrate and, and link your your um, fees and deliverables to to outcomes. Then then that's where the opportunity comes. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I think that uh, value sharing model is very interesting, and in, in many many um, companies are starting to get interested in that. But 
Um, I think there are limitations to working with value sharing model. And that limitation is that you're able to measure a baseline where we, where we start, and then you're able to, to identify which parts of, of the, the improvement that you see over the six or 12 months is really linked to the project. So at some point, it goes back to how to, you measure the impact or the value of a consulting project. And, and you know that, <laughs> I always do that, I always say that because it's the joke, is like consultants tell their clients to measure almost everything, right? Measure this, measure that, and you can't improve if you don't measure, you know they're saying and so on. So how do you, how to measure the impact and the value in a consulting project? What are the what are the ways to to really assess that? Because that's the only way to to measure ROI, right? Sure, sure. Um, so any any well run consulting project should have a um, a definition of success phase, right? So we need to sit down and figure out what does success look like for this project. Um, that requires us to identify key performance indicators, to set targets, to analyze the past, um, and this is where people I don't think generally you know, go far enough is you need to analyze the past, but you also need to predict the future to some extent. So if we were not going to run this consulting project, what do we anticipate our conversion rate would be or our productivity levels would be or engagement levels would be, whatever the KPI is that that consulting project is geared towards. And then if we're able to say, okay, well, if we do nothing, we think it'll look like this. So let's make uh, you know an agreement that says anything above that level um, is going to be worthy of additional reward. Uh, so that's one way. Uh, other ways are using control groups. So we might say, okay, well, let's let's just take a portion of the business right now, um, you know, and and we'll we'll have a parallel control group that we do nothing with, and we'll have a group that we work <laughs> intensively with, and we'll measure the key performance indicators and look at the the, the change. Um, you know, sometimes it's really easy. I remember when we worked with uh, the big travel company Tui. Uh, their conversion rate was static for the previous two years. So no one was going to argue if we came along and all of a sudden they get an uptick, they will know that it's down to the project. But in contrast, you know, I, I, in fact, I mentioned Carfan Warehouse earlier, when we did a deal, that deal, that risk and reward deal with them, they were in the midst of launching a new iPhone and, and all sorts of stuff was going on. So it really comes down to the spirit of the agreement then. We, we, need, we want to do whatever we can to strip out the noise so that we can focus in on the KPIs that we believe we're accountable for delivering on. Um, but we accept there's going to be some noise. And, and so it's about you know, documenting what you can and being you know, working in the spirit of partnership, really, to, to do what's right. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, you know, collaboration, um, discussion, always you know, the conversation starts during the sourcing phase, but it has to continue during the delivery phase and has to have that relationship that you're building with, with um, the consultant, between the consultant, the procurement and the, the business line, who is the user, because that's the only way that you can maximize the chance of success of the project. That's the way to go. And I like your, your, your suggestion to, you know, especially when you have a value sharing model, sit at the very beginning of your project and say, okay, so what does success look like? And, and how are we going to measure that? And what level of, of, of uh, compensation will we get depending on the level of success? Because if you do that, then it's, it's really clear 
where are you going to end up? Everyone, everyone is clear on the expectations and then you, it's much easier to deal in particular if things don't go well, because that's the risk we always talk about. If it goes great, we're going to pay, be paid more, but we also need to know what happens if it doesn't go well. And everyone has a reference to, to, to argue, you know, to, to build their case and say, I, I deserve this because one, two, three. And that's kind of a good, uh, good relationship um, that always do like that. I will say that it's, it's you know, um, a contract with a consultant is just like a, a marriage, right? Everything goes, is, is great until it isn't. And, yeah. so, <laughs> and so you need to prepare sometimes for things being not that great. And I think that's in the interest of both sides to really be clear. So you don't have to go into the lengths to write kind of a, super long list of things that can go wrong. But I think that being clear on what are the expectations, what is the measure of success and, and make sure you're in, you, um, you involve the right stakeholders at the beginning, make sure you, um, you trace the change of scope. So you know exactly what has been asked and, and, yeah. and how the consultant answered That's I think that's the key. Well, thank you. Do you have anything else that you wanted to add? Um, Mark? Uh, I, I guess I'd probably end on a, on a hope that, uh, that that we start to see some change in the way in procurement um, procures consulting services. And, and, and I guess, referencing back to some of the early conversations, also not to constrain the creativity, you know. Yes. And uh, sometimes, you know, you won't, as a procurer, you won't know what you actually need or what you actually you know what, or you don't know what's out there. You know, uh, and and uh, so to create space for people to to be creative. I, I, in fact, one one last example with one of our members was telling us uh, in fact, on on a workshop the other day how he wanted to submit a video as part of his pitch. Yeah, um, I remember. You, in fact, Helen, you were there. You you yes. heard this. Yeah? <laughs> um, so he wanted to submit a video as part of his pitch because he felt it was a really effective way of articulating how he could support this organization transform. And procurement said no, because it would no. disadvantage the others. But that, for me, that's just that's the wrong way to look at it. You know, if the others want to do a video, then they can, you know. Yes, um, yes, I agree. So I, agree. I, think, I think this this really shouts for um, more expert buyers for the consulting category. Because the reason why they refuse this is because they didn't realize that because of the very nature of consulting, which is intangible, meaning that they, each proposal will be different. Even if it's yeah. a piece of paper, whatever is inside is, can be extremely different and the approaches are different, everything's different. So having someone do with video or do with paper doesn't matter. What matters is what's inside. And, um, and so I agree with you that Probably the most difficult part of buying consulting is to define the expectations in a way that is at the same time clear. So everybody knows where you are, where you want to go, what your issue you're trying to solve. And they have all the information to really build a solution that fits your needs. But at the same time, give them enough room to, you know, create a solution that is unique to your needs. That's why I always say, write an RFP always to clarify expectation, but limit yourself to 
than necessary. Everything else can be said during conversation with the consultants. It can be said during a pitch if you have one, or during a QA. If it's you, sometimes you have QA that are made um, individually. So you do you just come and you ask your questions to the client. All of these are very good ways to kind of squeeze the other information that you want to tell the consultant, but that that could be uh, if you write in an RHP a little bit too rigid and then you yeah. just close, you just close um, the RFP and it's just, it's just you, and, and you treat uh, consulting as a commodity, which is not. Absolutely. Kind of- I, yeah, I mean, I guess my final comment would just be to keep in mind that you're looking for the best solution, not for the provider who can just tick all the relevant boxes and stay within the constraints of, of what you've asked for. Um, and, I, and I, like you say, it's an intelligent purchase at the end of the day, it's not a commodity purchase. And uh, you know, trying to turn it into a commodity purchase, I think, is a big risk. I agree. I think that's the word um, of the end. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. That's it for today. Next time, I'll discuss about how to measure consulting performance. In the meantime, if you have any questions or want to learn more about what we do at Consulting Quest, just send me an email at elaine.lafitte with two F and two T's at consultingquest.com. You can also have a look at our website, smartconsultingsourcing.com, to know more about our book and download free templates and guides to improve your consulting sourcing. Bye and see you next week. Au revoir.